Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I, I want you to continue to worship with me by finding Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 today, as we take a look at one of the more powerful ceremonies in all of Scripture. What we just did, you might argue, is a ceremony. We gather on the Lord's Day in the Lord's house, the first day of the week, and we do this every week, barring any cataclysmic weather event, we're here, we're open. And we do this because since the resurrection of Christ, followers of Jesus have gathered on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and do so to worship Him, to give, to pray, to fellowship, to be reminded, and to hear from His Word. So, by default, if you're here, you understand the power of ceremony. Now, there are many ceremonies in our lives. Yesterday, I had the privilege of standing over one of the saints of our church who was called home to be with the Lord last week, and we enjoyed a celebration of his life, a memorial service, a funeral, as it were. I've also had the privilege of officiating many weddings where right in front of us and the congregation that gathers, a family is birthed. We know the ceremony that young parents often participate in here around Mother's Day and about six months later where they bring new life and we dedicate children to the Lord. We understand the ceremony of professing our faith publicly through believers' baptism. At the conclusion of the service today, we will walk ourselves into communion, the Lord's Supper, and that ceremony represents something. Ceremonies are not always of a spiritual nature. There are ceremonies in your life that happen, that happen across all cultures. It will be the celebration of many young people in our church and in our community in four or five months from now, about six or so, where they will graduate from high school or college, and you will attend a graduation ceremony. You may have someone in your life who has received something in the medical field, and you will go with them to a white coat ceremony, or they will be pinned according to some academic accreditation or accomplishment that they have achieved. We know all kinds of ceremony, and ceremony matters. In our world of flippant casualness, it's important to remember that it is good for people to pause. This separates us from the rest of the known living world. Animals don't participate in ceremonies. But we as people made in the image of God with a conscience and a memory understand the significance of some moments. And today we come to the ceremony that God implemented that we know as the Passover. Now, just to catch you up, we have seen nine plagues unfolded upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians to break his will to release the people of God. If you happen to be a guest, we're in the book of Exodus. We're walking through it chapter by chapter, and we've reached the point where God's word is about to become fulfillment. He told Moses, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But Moses, he will not let them go until I send signs, wonders, also called plagues, to break his will and to show him that I, not the false gods of Egypt, but I, the God of the Bible, 
I am the one true living God. I have control and power to give and to take life, and I will convince him of this through the unfolding of my judgment. And we saw from plague one all the way to plague nine that the affirmation of God's grace and his judgment is seen in the progressive nature. It becomes more and more and more serious as the plagues progress. And we come now to the implementation of the 10th plague. Now, there's a lot going on here, and it reminded me of Sesame Street. Some of you may or may not have grown up on Sesame Street. I did before it went woke. <laughs> and I, I remember that one of the traditions of Sesame Street was a word of the day. Remember the word of the day? They would present the word of the day, and every time that word came up, all of the Muppets would go crazy and would remind you of that word. And, and the idea in pedagogy, pedagogy is the study of how children learn. The root word is where we also get our word pediatrician, but pedagogy is how kids learn. And one of the ways that kids learn is through repetition. And so you would give them a word of the day, and one of them would give the the definition of it. So, for example, now there's a Sesame Street Word of the Day podcast, and on this particular day, the word is confidence. And you know, my definition of confidence is that's that funny feeling that you get right before you really mess things up. That's what confidence is, right? It's all I bring to the table. That's what I told Laurel. I got no money, I got no looks, but I'm confident. I tell our staff all the time, I am not always right, but I'm always sure confidence. And so, teaching children confidence happens throughout the entire show. My little girl's five, and one of the things I do for her when I pick her up from school is I go, what did you learn today? And she's been hard to nail down because she won't walk me through what she's learned. What letter are you on? Because they do a letter every week, and they talk about words, and she's got words that she's learning, and they do crafts, and they do playtime, and guided study, and Bible study, and devotion here at our Early Learning Center. The faculty of ladies do an incredible job. We're six-time graduates of that organization. And so, I'm like, Evie, what did you learn? And she's like, eh, well, uh, I'm like, Laurel, is something wrong with this one? Like, what, what happened here, you know? And the other day, I picked her up, and we were in the presence of my assistant, Aubrey. Many of you have met her. And Aubrey asked her, Evie, what did you learn? And she went through the list. Well, first we did this, and first we did that, and then we did this. I looked at her, I'm like, I ask you that question every day, and you don't answer. And she's like, Daddy, you're not a girl. I'm like, what is this, a sorority where you can't share with me what you're learning? We're financing all this. Could you not tell me, give me a little bit of hope, a little bit of confidence that you're picking something up? Well, the Passover is this magnificently rich ceremony. We, we could spend eight weeks just preaching chapter 12. And so to do that, I thought I'd just give you some words. In fact, let me give you 10 words for the 10th plague. 10 words for the 10th plague. That means I've got about two minutes per word. So if you are a note taker, stretch your hand and get ready. 10 words for the 10th plague. Now, actually, chapter 12 talks about the 10th plague very quickly. 
It's at the end. We'll get there. The majority of chapter 12 is around the Passover, which was the ceremony delivered unto Moses that he was to deliver unto God's people to commemorate how God would save them from the 10th plague. The plague I talked about in detail last week. And all those messages are available in every platform that you want to hear a message. And so if you want to know more about the 10th plague, go to last week. But this week, we have to direct our attention toward the Passover. Are you ready? Three people are ready. (laughs) Go back to the Sesame Street slide, please. I need you to give me some confidence. Confidence. Are you ready? All right. Word number one, designation. Designation. Look at verses 1 through 2 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. When you are a slave, church family, dates, calendars don't really matter. You don't have control over your life. Every one of you has thought about your Thanksgiving plans. Every one of you has discussed your Christmas plans. And some of you have it together enough to where you already have some general ideas of what you will do with your family next summer. Many times when we put dates on the screen here at Church at the Mill, I watch all of the mothers take pictures of the dates because you are the hub and the wheel of your family and you're managing people going in different directions. Often it is that Laurel and I's marital marital discussions are nothing more than logistical coordination of who needs to be where. Beside our back door are not one but two chalkboard calendars that every game and every practice and every orthodontist visit and every other way in which the living life of my bank account is sucked out of me is put on that calendar. Because we are managing the lives of six children and two busy adults. One extraordinarily busy adult, and then there's me. I'm married to her. There are two of those. And so we know dates and times in advance. You can Google right now what date or what day was your birthday 200 years ago if you want to know it. It's noted. You can do it. You can do day countdowns if you want to. I have one of those countdown apps, and sometimes if I have an exciting opportunity coming up, I'll put it on the countdown app to remind me I have 137 days until opening day of turkey season, and I look at that every single morning. And so when you think about dates and times, you think about them as free people. We are free people. But when you are a slave... Yesterday, today, and tomorrow all look the same. So one of the things that's happening is that God is saying, I'm about to liberate you, and I'm going to designate your calendar. Now, the month here is what we would determine to be March, April. It became known in the Jewish vernacular, the vocabulary, as the month of Nisan. It's like the car Nisan, but with one S, Nisan. And this is the month that the Passover will occur from this point forward and still to this day. In fact, it is in the spring of the year at the Passover that we know the Lord Jesus is crucified. And one of the things that happens as we unpack this passage is we'll see that the very first thing God does is designate a day for his people. Word number one is designation. Word number two 
is preparation. Ladies, raise your hand if you have started a Thanksgiving grocery list on some app. Y'all need to get on with it. I am sure, one of the fascinating discussions I have with my wife about this is, is that she starts every list new. I'm like, we eat the same stuff. Why don't you just create a working list and then cut and paste to see when I go down that path? She shuts me down very quickly. She says, you run your little church just the way you want to. I'm going to run our house. Look at you. You're eating pretty good, ain't you? Every one of you is preparing for Thanksgiving. There is no meal in our lives that we don't have some preparation for, but it is a very important thing to prepare for a feast and a ceremony. And the very first decision you must make whenever you plan an important meal, a barbecue, a birthday dinner, is what will the main course be? Because any culinary astute person knows that the main course then determines the sides that you put with it. Most people don't think about turkey and baked potato. Now, if you mentioned a ribeye, baked potato comes to my mind. But if you say turkey, I say and dressing because the two just go hand in hand together and gravy and cranberry sauce and deviled eggs and sweet potato casserole, which is really so sweet it ought to be a dessert, but we count it as a vegetable because Jesus told us to in the book of Opinions, chapter 4, verse 7. What's happening here is a meal is being implemented. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 3. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household, so one lamb per house. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, the Bible is rich with the metaphor of the lamb, but it's not a metaphor. Ultimately, it starts in reality. What God is doing here is he's implementing a ceremony that will be centered around a feast which will produce a sacrificial blood which will foreshadow a greater lamb who is to come. This is why when Jesus shows up and he is identified in the book of John chapter 1, this is what it says. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, now this is Peter, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why Moses was told by God, when you choose the Lamb, don't choose a deformed one, a malnourished one, one that is spotted, representing a lack of purity. Rather, choose a male Lamb without blemish. And of course, the same God that implemented this ceremony knew that this ceremony would set the world up to celebrate the ultimate lamb without blemish, which is why when you read the New Testament, one of the things people can't get past is how perfect of a lamb Jesus was. 
The scripture tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. John 19, 6. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, now these are the enemies of Christ, they said, crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate, a Roman pagan, said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. So heaven knew he was perfect, his followers knew he was perfect, and his enemies ultimately realized there was no guilt in him. And of course, Hebrews chapter 9 says it this way, How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the writer of Hebrews says, If the blood of lambs served as a symbol of God's forgiveness through the sacrifice, how much more will the perfect Lamb of God? So the Hebrew families were to take a lamb. And the Scripture says they were to care for the lamb from the 10th day until the 14th day. In other words, the lamb was taken out of the flock and into the home. What happens to any animal that's cute brought into your home? Every child, every woman, and guys, every dude, we begin to bond with it. This was by design. Daddy, where are you going with the lamb? Daddy, what are you doing with the lamb? So that every family would feel the sorrow and the pain of the sacrifice at twilight together. Now imagine an entire generation of Jews going out at the end of the day at twilight and bringing forth their lambs to sacrifice. And in Scripture, what we find is this preparation taking place, but it leads to the third word, propitiation. This is not a familiar word to you. It should be, though. It is one of the most important words in Christian theology. This is what propitiation means, according to Wayne Grudem, a phenomenal theologian of our day. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. This is what happens in the Scripture. Look at verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. So first, choose the date. God did it. Second, choose the lamb. The father did it. Third, sacrifice the lamb. The family did it. Fourth, take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts. And we'll see why in just a moment. But the doorpost and the lamb were to signify the shedding of blood. Why is this important? Remember, these people have not received the Levitical law yet. We've not gotten to the book of Leviticus. But in the book of Leviticus, this is what the Scripture says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've often told you, blood in you, good thing. Blood on the floor, bad thing. First thing happens in an emergent situation, in a triage unit, is that if there is hemorrhaging, you must stop the bleeding. A human body can have a perfectly good, healthy brain, heart, set of lungs, but without blood, there's no life in the body. Well, God knew this because he created us. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. 
This is why the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says in chapter 9, verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Which is why Paul says in the book of Romans, whom God, referring to Jesus, put forward as a, here comes our word, Sesame Street, uh, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, God did not eternally judge the faithful before Jesus, but waited and judged them by faith in Jesus because at the moment of Jesus' death, the Lamb of God, the blood that was sufficient to take the sins of the world was shed. Now, we have to deal with a the theological problem that many people have. They say, well, I don't understand why this God is so angry. In other words, couldn't he just forgive? Why does blood have to be shed? Why does the Bible clearly say the wages of sin are death? Why do conservative Bible-believing churches still preach the blood? Why do we never move away from the blood? Well, it's because the holiness of God is seen in the fullness of his grace and his wrath. If God is not wrathful against sin, he's not holy. But in his great grace, he allowed Christ to take on his wrath that we might have his favor. I do not want a God who compromises his own character to save me. But I do want a God whose salvation is so rich that he would uphold the full measure of his justice by punishing Christ and display the full measure of his kindness by forgiving me. And by the way, it is that same God hundreds of years before David, hundreds of years before Jesus, who's implementing this ceremony, preparing his people to deliver a Messiah. Word number three is propitiation. Word number four, participation. Look at verse eight. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Notice how they eat it together, everyone. Everyone must take part in the Passover. In other words, there is something unique about the 10th plague. Do you remember along about plague two and three and four, we began preaching and teaching that God would bring the plague to the Egyptians, but differentiate the Jews. Only the Egyptians knew the curse of darkness. Only the Egyptians had the boils on their skin. Only the Egyptians dealt with the curse against their livestock. And what God was doing is he was showing, I am bringing my judgment on those who were disobeying me, and I am protecting those who are my own. But the 10th plague 
the 10th plague, was so devastating that there would be no escape from it from anyone unless the blood of a lamb was shed. Meaning, every Jew given this ceremony must participate in the Passover if they wanted to experience the Passover. There is no salvation by association. You do not receive the grace of God because your grandmother was godly. You do not receive forgiveness because your mother prayed for you. Those are wonderful blessings and they often are used by God in the lineage of faith as we will see in a moment. But any person who wants the favor of God and wants to escape the wrath of God must participate in the receiving of the Lamb of God. You must be born again. And so symbolically, he said, everyone eat. There's no leftovers. This is a once and for all meal. In other words, this is not something to be stored up and munched on later. This is bigger and greater than just the normal preparation of meat. Word number four is participation. Word number five, application. Look at verse 12 as we continue. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Now, if you love your Bible, you may wonder, well, does God just acknowledge that there are other gods of Egypt? He absolutely acknowledges that there are other gods of Egypt. They're just false gods, which is why he's executing his judgment. Remember that the previous nine plagues are not only an assault on Pharaoh's disobedience, they are an assault on every major deity of Egypt. And so he's saying, I'm showing these people that the hope they've placed in created gods will go down with death. And he says in the second part of verse 12, that famous phrase, I am the Lord. Now watch verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this is important now. You've got to put on your thinking cap with me. Sesame Street reference. He says, the blood is a sign. The literal blood of an animal couldn't save anyone. The blood was a sign that the faith in the home had been expressed in participating in the Passover. In other words, he's saying, when I come through Egypt and I see the blood, I will know something has already died, so I'll grant life. If I don't see blood, I grant death. This is why the blood of Christ is so precious. When you are under the blood of Christ, you stand before a holy God, and he knows someone has already died for you. So the only thing I have to give you is life. But if there is no blood over your life, then a reckoning must occur, and death and hell will follow, which is why he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, for it is a sign that those in the house 
are of the faith in me. Now, when we think about application, we can't help but miss the clear teaching of the gospel. There is only one way for people to make heaven and miss hell. That is to step into heaven perfect. But there's only one way for imperfect people, all of which we are, to step into heaven perfect. And that is to be totally forgiven of our sin. Well, there's only one way to be totally forgiven of your sin. For the grace of God and the justice of God to be appeased, to be met. The grace of God extends the Savior of God who shed the blood of God that we might receive the forgiveness of God. Which is why Christians don't walk around ungrateful. Our whole society will pause for Thanksgiving in a few days. Our gratefulness should run deeper than any worldly level of gratitude. Should I be grateful for my family and my country and food on my table? Of course. Am I grateful for my health and the joy of... Yes, yes, yes. But none of those things are promised. We're watching the world we live in grow more and more fragile in geopolitical terms. We sense and know that conflict is coming. I don't know what that's going to look like. I had a discussion recently with my wife about some really deep thoughts I've been having about the idea of the world being reset by a third major world war, and could that be a great awakening to the gospel? I don't know. I think about stuff like that. Probably shouldn't think about it as much as I do, but I do think about it. But what a believer has is a believer has this deep-seated peace of knowing that not only do I know how the world will come to an end, even though I don't know when it will occur, I know I'm of not, or I'm not of the world. And because I'm not of the world, then basically we're a citizen of heaven living as an alien. So we just take our orders from the king and say, well, what would you have me do? And he would have us feed our families and run our businesses and educate our children and love our neighbor. But we'd, he would have us do that with the eternal perspective that this is not home. And it's not just that this is not home and we wish things get better. It's that this is not home and I know where my home is and I know where I'm going because of the blood. And, and, and therefore, when Moses is told, tell the people to spread the blood and when I see the blood, I will pass over them. God's not just thinking about midnight in Egypt. He's thinking about Calvary. And so, this is one of the most beautiful things about your Bible. The Lord who inspired the New Testament knew about the New Testament before he wrote the Old Testament. And by the way, Paul tells us and Jude tells us that it is Christ who delivers the people out of Egypt. So, the Spirit of God that is speaking to Moses is the same Spirit of God that will raise Jesus from the dead. And so can you imagine him putting into place this incredibly beautiful ceremony that has significance to forego the wrath of God temporarily with the permanence of recognizing an eternal meaning underlines it. And then we have not only application, but word number six, commemoration. Look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. 
And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. I read one commentator this week that said that, uh, that, that Christianity is sort of like amnesia and deja vu all together. It's almost like I get to a point in my life where I'm like, I think I've been here before where I forgot how good God is. Paul tells Timothy these words when Timothy's discouraged. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And then Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives the gospel, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Key verb, Timothy, when you get discouraged, remember, commemorate what has been done. A few days ago, I preached at Liberty University to 8,000 college students. It was incredible. One of the things that I wanted to make sure I stress for them in my message is God doesn't have to solve your problems. One of the great misconceptions of Christianity in that generation is just add a little Jesus to your life and it'll make things awesome. I am grateful for how awesome Jesus is. I'm grateful for his joy and his love and his peace. And I've often told you that I want to be known as a church filled with laughter and, and, and that we be people who are brimming with the joy of the Lord. I, I get all that. But Jesus is not a 911 number you call to solve your problems. He's a king who's already delivered you from your one major problem. And therefore, he has the right to say, I'm going to call you to live for me, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be faithful, but some stuff's going to be hard. Some doors are going to slam. Some situations are not going to be resolved. Some people that you love are never going to reconcile with you. Some tumors that you pray against aren't going to go away. Sickness is going to come and death and war and famine are a part of it. And the greater joy and the greater hope is not that we live in gloom and doom, gloom and doom, but that we live with the reassurance that when I get discouraged, I remember he's already died for me. He's already forgiven my sins. He's already shed his blood. He's already told me he's there building a place for you and for me. He's already promised that he's going to come back. He told us it's going to be hard. He said it would be difficult. And he said, through the trials and the suffering, I will manifest my glory in you. That if I want to know him in his resurrection, I have to know him in his suffering. And what that does is that doesn't set a Christian on a path of always being down or discouraged. It gives my pain purpose. When things don't work out, when situations aren't resolved, when life is sloppy and messy, I know God's doing something here bigger than me. Why? Because he told me to remember and commemorate. Word number seven. We're moving along pretty good. I'm sort of proud of myself. Sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart. Look what happens in verse 15, and then we'll drop down in verses 17 and 20. He says in verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And then look at verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. So don't, don't get confused. The Passover, 
the Passover is a holiday, a meal, a feast, the sacrifice of a lamb. It happens to kick off what is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day feast. So if you're ever reading about the Feast of the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they go together. Now, now look at verse 17 with that in your mind. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, he keeps saying it, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native in the land. As if he hasn't said it enough, look at verse 20. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. What is the deal with unleavened bread? I have a love-hate relationship with bread. I'm supposed to hate it, but I love it. I love everything about it. Young lady babysat our children. Laurel went with me to Lynchburg this week. And when I got home, this young lady with my daughter as an activity had made homemade cinnamon rolls, somebody shout. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? I mean, I'm not going to be rude. I certainly want to try one or four. <laughs> I love it. But do you know, and if those of you who bake, I, I don't bake, I partake in bake, but I don't bake. Do you know that part of the reason that flour rises is that it's leavened? Leaven is actually a, 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 a bacteria. This is how you get sourdough bread. It starts with something that sours. There's a fermentation process to it. It's better. It's better. Unleavened bread, mm, it's kind of like a cracker. doesn't rise. doesn't have as much taste. So he's not blessing them in their in the person by the taste. He's saying, I want you to unleaven. Here's why, ladies, you'll get this. Leavened bread took time in antiquity. You couldn't go out and buy a starter lump. You had to leaven your own dough. It took time. But the whole point of the Passover was to celebrate it in haste. Remember when I read a few minutes ago, you were to eat with your tunic gathered, with your staff ready. That's not how we eat. I get to your house, I'm going to eat. When I look at the table, if it looks good, I'm taking some clothes off. I'm getting ready. Fourth of July, you cut a watermelon. I'm taking my shirt off if we're outside. I'm going to get after it, right? I want my chin to be shiny at a pig picking. I want to experience it. In fact, we know the worst food for us is what? Fast food. You feel terrible. You pull in, you get it, you're driving, you're returning a text, you're shoving a combo down your mouth and trying to make yourself feel better because you got an extra, extra large Diet Coke. When I feast, I sit down, I take my coat off, I slide up. Once we're all under the table, I may even unbutton the belt a little bit, and we enjoy ourselves. And the sweetest part about Thanksgiving are those times when the meal has been put forth, and we've eaten, and we push our plates back, and we just laugh and enjoy one another. I'm at that point now when I have all my children in one place it just means a lot to me for about a half hour, and then I grow weary, and I'm ready for them to go in different directions. But this was not to be the case. So there was no time to leaven bread. 
But there's also something else going on here. God does not just want Israel out of Egypt. He wants the Egypt out of Israel. Meaning he's saying, you celebrate the ceremony where you cleaned your house of anything left from captivity. Christian, listen. You want to suck the joy out of the celebration of your salvation? Allow stuff from your lost life to move back into your house. This is why when Paul was dealing with sexual sin in the church in Corinth, guess what he says? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. There were people bragging on their sexual exploits. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Oh, Paul read his Old Testament. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb. See how it's making sense? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Lord, clean me out of anything from my old life. And as the world tries to bombard my mind and my heart with things that are not of you, clean me out that I be unleavened bread, just like my ancient forefathers who ate quickly with their children, their wives, their servants, ate and left in liberation. Let's get to the next word. The word would be convocation. Look at verse 16. The Bible says these words, On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared. You don't just celebrate this individually. You come together as a people it's why, for those of you watching online, due to illness, sickness, travel, military service, we rejoice in the gift of technology. But if you're sitting at home out of a pure decision of convenience, you have missed blessing us, and you've missed a blessing. In reality, there is something about the people of God convening a holy assembly. And then we see number nine continuation. This may be my favorite part of the Passover. Look at verse 24. You shall observe this right as the Lord will give you, and he has promised. You shall keep this service. Mom and dad, listen to verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Part of the reason God gave them the Passover was to pass on the faith in Yahweh. This is important. This morning out in the concourse, I was greeting some folks, and I walked by a mother. She did not even speak to me. She was busy. She was on a mission. She was going. She certainly was not rude. She had two Bibles in her hand, probably hers and her husband's. Guess what? Every child behind her was carrying a Bible. You know why? Because mama probably said, bring your Bible. Trip Atkinson, our next-gen pastor, gave me a statistic recently that broke my heart. I'm saying it to you in love, but in firmness. 
During this 9 o'clock hour, the student ministry has small group, Sunday school, whatever you want to call it. They get together. He asked every student in the student ministry from 6th grade to 12th grade, how many of you will be here and then leave and won't go to worship? 46% of our students at the 9 o'clock small group hour don't stay for 11 o'clock worship. Do you know why? Because you're their mother and their father. You come at 9, they go their direction, you go yours, you meet back up at 10:15, and you leave. If that stung, I hope it did. And here's the reason why. Listen, I realize that you may say, well, if they come and we don't worship till 11, what am I going to do during 9? I don't know. How about serve? How about help us in a children's ministry that is exploding? For all I care, drink coffee and talk to one another. Why do I think it's important for your children to sit under the preaching of the Word of God from the pastor of the church? Not because of my ego, but because as God's called leader of this church, I believe I need to be preaching into the life of your student just as much as I'm preaching into the life of you. I also think your ninth grade boys and your seventh grade girls need to look and see you following along in your word as pastor preaches, displaying the submission to spiritual authority that you want them to display when you push God's word into their life. So I want you to help me destroy this number. I want every student to enjoy the fullness of our student ministry. Don't pull them out of nine. But I want them to worship with you. And if that means you have to change your worship flow or your rhythm or your hour, I, I get that. We are planning a third service. We have not announced when because we're watching and tracking the needs of our campus. But I have a feeling that in 2024, there will be an additional service added. And when that's added, it will make it even easier for you to make sure your students and you are worshiping together and in small group at age-appropriate ways. Why? Because I want you to pass on the faith to them, which then, of course, leads to the 10th word, liberation. N notice something in Exodus chapter 12. Very little attention is given to the plague. In fact, we don't pick it up until verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up at the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said. Be gone. And look at this. He says, And bless me also. I see now. That your God is God. Now, I don't believe Pharaoh has a conversion here, but he definitely humbles himself and says, I am now the king of a dynasty of death. I need the blessings of your God, for I have experienced his curse. And with that, the people of God are liberated. Now, if you were to walk back through every one of those words, they are also words that are experienced in the life of every Christian in this room. It's why we couldn't end today without listening to the words of Jesus in Luke 22. This is how Luke begins chapter 22 of his gospel. 
you can close your Bibles. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near. Where'd Luke hear about that? From Exodus chapter 12. Which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. I want you to listen to chapter 22, verse 7 of Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Jesus knew his Bible. And listen to verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Notice the moment. The ultimate Passover lamb was eating the Passover. Why? Two reasons. One, he says, I wanted to. Two, he never sinned. It would be a sin for a Jewish man to break the law. So the night before his death, he kept the law and ate the Passover. The scripture goes on to tell us what happened that evening. As you take your elements, you know that we enjoy the bread and the cup. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to follow us with this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to participate by watching the believers around you. We want every person in this room to trust Christ, but I also want to be faithful to his word. And this is a ceremony for those who have done that, who have trusted Christ. If you have a small child near you, it's perfectly fine to say, honey, when you come of age and you understand, you too can participate. But until then, you watch mommy, you watch daddy, and we can talk about it later when your children ask you, why are we the Passover lamb? You tell them about what God has done. Jesus said these words, beginning in verse 16. For I tell you that I will not eat, until the, and eat again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For I tell you that now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said these words. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary.